We're living the dream. Are we? We are. Welcome to the dreams of... Science. Science. I mean, the sausage of science. Or the dreams of sausage. We can go both ways on this one. Anyway, welcome to the sausage of science. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the sausage of science. Sausage of science. Where we Not talk the about sausage of, like, sausage. And we talk about... we're going to do that episode. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah. We need to find a human biologist to... We're going to bring Vince back. Yeah. Because Vince Vince gave me his recipe for an Italian sausage, and it's really good. (laughs) Right on. I mean, it takes some time and effort, but it is fantastic. Well, Um, it's not so far off topic, because today we're not talking about humans at all. We're talking about arachnids. The science of spiders. The science of spiders and how it meets up with uh, science communication, which is what we're doing here right now. Really cool. I'm sure like everybody listening has seen those really wonderful videos of, I don't know what they're called. I call them the semaphore spiders, but they do these like fancy dances with their really colorful legs and people set it to ridiculous disco music. We might need to put one of those links in the show notes. Well, if, if she has any. So we're going to be talking to Eileen Hebbets, who is a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in the School of Biological Sciences and a courtesy faculty member in the Department of Entomology who has lots and lots of cool spider videos and lots and lots of fun science communication videos about spiders. So she might have one of those she can send our way. And we're bringing her on today because she is at Alabama now for the Allele series, correct? Yeah, she's giving a talk tonight called Life on Eight Legs, How Arachnids Can Inspire Science and Discovery. And I read two of her papers. And one of them was specifically comparing animal communication to science communication, which I just think is Very cool. I need to read that one. Yeah, super awesome. Which one was that? Was that the experimental biology one or the proceedings? Experimental biology. Yeah, I'm totally going to look that one up because that's, you know, right up my alley. I have a huge admission to make that I, I grew up. My brother, I blame my brother for this because he is an arachnophobe. And I think him being the older sib imprinted on me to be scared of spiders. So I was that child in the middle of the night when I saw a spider on the wall, I would panic. And I would trap it in a glass, you know, put the piece of paper under and then like turn it over on the counter so that my parents could deal with it in the morning. We've talked about bugs on here before and maybe technically I know spiders are not insects. Yeah, bugs don't bother me, spiders bother me. Okay, so there's this common trope in anthropology that humans have this spider snake aversion. And I think we were talking to Julie Lesnick, mm-hmm. who, who we talked to by entophagy. She calls bullshit on that, as I recall. We discussed that a little bit, that we don't really actually have evidence for a, a spider phobia like mechanism an or an innate one. Yeah. Yeah. Like mine was totally imprinted on me. I have no issue with snakes. None. I think they're pretty cool. Yeah. But yeah, it was totally imprinted on me. Do we have any update on our guest? Hello. Yes. Well timed. All right, so we already did a little introduction, so we've already told everyone who you are um, from a technical side, but we always like to start off all of our interviews getting to know the person, and I heard a little bit about you actually from Jeff Lozier. I don't know if you remember him. He was a student at Berkeley when you were there. Oh, wow. So the podcast is called The Sausage of Science, and the idea is that we want to know what goes in the sausage of making science. We also want to know what goes into the making of the scientists. So we'd love to hear a little bit about you and your background and what brought you to the study of 
I know spiders and other eight-legged creatures in science communication. Okay, so I guess that's my cue. <laughs> so I guess ever since I was little, as far back as I can remember, I loved the outdoors, I loved camping, I loved hiking, and in particular, I loved animals. You know, I could sit and watch a frog, a lizard. When we would go camping, I would sit down at the dock for hours trying to catch tadpoles, turtles. So I, I knew I loved biology. I loved being outside. And when I chose my college, I was looking for biology programs because I knew that I loved biology, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had never thought about research, didn't even really know what research was. So I went to a small liberal arts college with a really good biology program and was in the honors program and had the opportunity to do a senior honors research project. And it was one in which I went down to Mississippi and did research on spiders. And it changed my life, basically. I had been told by a senior student at my college that research was incredibly boring. <laughs> and that if I thought I wanted to do research, I should really try my hand at it first because it was just dull and repetitive. And that was not at all what I found. So when I was down in Mississippi, I was collecting wolf spiders and recording their courtship behavior and everything was new and it was fascinating. And I found that I could watch them for hours. I was captivated and I was seeing things that most people, possibly no one else had ever seen. Certainly mm -hmm. most people had never seen. And I just kind of fell in love with the discovery of the natural world. It brought together all of my interests in a way that was really satisfying. And so from there, I mostly just kept doing what I loved and never really set out to become a scientist, didn't set out to become a faculty member, a professor. I finished my undergrad. I loved the research, so I decided to go on and do more research. And I did a master's degree, and I was still loving the research, mm -hmm. and decided to go on and do a PhD. And that's exactly how I find myself where I am today, was I just kept following my passion and my love. And now I'm a full professor at a Research One institution still doing research. So undergraduate project, was that something larger with an advisor uh, or was it something you developed on your own? Uh, and what did you learn from it that I guess kept adding on those questions? Right. So it was with an advisor and really this advisor, Gail Stratton, is the person who completely changed my life when I was an undergrad. I asked her to be my mentor for my undergrad research project. I had no ideas of what I wanted to do. I, again, had never done research before. I didn't even really know what that meant. And her response was that if I worked on spiders, she would be my advisor. And so I said, sure. I don't know anything about them. Um, I don't know anything about research, but if you'll help me, I'm happy to work on spiders. And she had a National Geographic grant to do research down in Mississippi that summer and hired me on as a research assistant. And so that was my first foray into research. And she was someone who was just so open to anything I was interested in and so incredibly encouraging and supportive. And she really fed my curiosity. I was constantly asking questions 
And she was constantly telling me what great questions they were and how a lot of the answers we don't know, but I could be the one to figure them out. And she really kind of showed me that I could be a scientist and a researcher. And really it was because of her that I have taken the, the path that I have taken. This is a theme that's come up a lot in our show. I mean, everybody knows the importance of graduate school advisors, but the role of undergraduate advisors for establishing our passion for what we do is absolutely key. Yeah, she was and still is an incredibly important person in my life. I'm curious, uh, since you're in Alabama, right next door to Mississippi, why Mississippi? Is there something special about spiders in Mississippi? There is actually. So the genus that I started working on as an undergrad and continue to work on today is a genus of wolf spider. The name is Schizicosa. And the center of radiation is the southeastern USA. So I can go to near Oxford, Mississippi and collect up to 12 different species within this genus. And it's amazing. You could get out of your car and start walking towards the forest and there'll be one species that lives in the grass. And then right at the edge of the forest, as there's some pine litter and leaf litter, you'll hit another couple species. And then you walk a little bit deeper in where it's more full leaf litter and you'll hit another couple species. Hmm. And throughout the season, those species change. Hmm. And so one of my overarching interests is diversification and biological diversity. And so, how and why do we have so many species living in such a small area is what really one of the big overarching questions of one of my research programs. And so I continue to come down to Mississippi and I'm guessing in Alabama you have many of these same species, but this really is kind of a center of radiation or thought to be a center of radiation for some of these wolf spiders. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so let's keep going on the spiders. But part of what you're talking about today, I believe, is spider communication and how it relates to also science communication among humans. So let's start with the first bit of what does spider communication look like and how do you even study it given human communication bias? Right, it is an excellent question. So we are very biased in that we have verbal communication. We also have visual communication. But one thing that we... No, and in fact, right now we're doing this podcast, but we specifically have cameras set up so that we can see each other as well, because visual cues are incredibly important in addition to the acoustical cues and signals that we're using. And so spiders are the same way. The spiders in this genus that I work on, they produce vibratory signals and they do it, so if you can imagine holding a comb in one hand and imagine the teeth of that comb coming down and picking up a butter knife in your other hand and running that knife along the teeth of the comb, and if you're at home, you could do this, and imagine the sound that that makes. That is called stridulation. And lots of animals make sounds that way, where on one body part, they have what's called a file, so like the comb, and on the other body part, they have a scraper. And when they rub those two body parts together, they produce sound. And what spiders do, at least the spiders I study, is they have a file and a scraper on two different joints of their appendages, and when they bend those joints, 
they produce sound and they can couple it with whatever they're touching. So if they're on a leaf, they produce a sound and it, those vibrations transmit along the leaf. So another spider sitting a distance away can feel mm -hmm. or hear those sounds. So that's a really common way that they communicate. But in some, they wave their legs and they tap them on the ground. And so this combination of visual and vibratory signaling is one of the things I'm really interested in. And how and why do animals combine these different modalities? Are there advantages? Are there extra costs? And in spiders, what we find, again, in the genus I work on, that one species may only use vibrations and the other uses vibrations that are complex and they add all these visual pieces to it. And so I'm really interested in how and why they do that. And I think it's really relevant to human communication as well. And especially as a scientist and a professor at an R1 institution, I do a lot of teaching. And so I think a lot about from the student's perspective, you know, learning and memory and how does the way in which I convey information and whether I use one medium or modality or multiple ones, does that enhance their learning? Does it enhance their memory? Does it enhance their engagement, their attention? And so I think a lot of the work that I do is, for me at least, it's directly translatable into other pieces of my job. But it can also really lend insight into the way brains function and hmm. brains work. And by studying a simpler system like spiders, I think we can understand a lot more some of the foundational aspects of communication that are more challenging to study in other animals. So we are using visual and auditory. So for our listening audience, Eileen gave us the air quotes for simpler <laughs> system. And I wanna, I wanna use that as a sort of segue for my next question and to bring up a great quote of yours. So in 2018, you published a commentary with Alyssa Anderson in the Journal of Experimental Biology with this rather provocative comparison. You say, quote, while communication between a human parent and her teenage daughter may initially seem distinct from communication between a male spider and a potentially cannibalistic female mate, upon closer inspection, there are many similarities. I feel like there might be some personal insights there, but maybe I'm reading into things. I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit. Right. So turns out I do have a teenage daughter. <laughs> so your intuition was correct. I was meaning to be provocative there just to really point out the similarity across all communication systems where each individual has a certain reason for engaging in communication. And for example, as a parent, when I am talking to my daughter, there is a certain response that I am hoping for. And I'm working very hard to communicate effectively in order to elicit the appropriate response. But more often than not, I'm not successful in eliciting the response that I'm hoping for. And you know, it's the same when a male spider is trying to entice a female to mate. You know, he is really trying to convince this other spider to engage in a certain response. And sometimes that is not the case. And I think with a male spider, the one potential outcome is that he gets eaten. 
And I'm lucky in that that won't happen with me and my daughter, but there can similarly be dire consequences of unsuccessful communication. So if I may, because I have three teenagers, minor boys, but the dire consequences in my household, and let me know if it sounds familiar, is that my wife or I may say something seemingly innocuous like, did you do your chores? Did you do your homework? How are you, dear? And they literally bite our head off. Yes, that's like, exactly. Not literally, but yeah. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm talking about. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. My way to turn this is, that is scary. The fact that they literally can consume one another. I have an older brother and he somehow grew up with arachnophobia. He feared spiders and he totally imprinted that on me when I was a child. Oh. Uh, yeah, I know, right? And so I was the kid who totally, when I saw a spider in the middle of the night, when I got up to go to the bathroom, I would stop and hold still, then I would run to the kitchen and I would get a cup and put it in the cup and put a paper and like transfer the whole thing back to the kitchen for my parents to deal with in the morning. It was a whole process. So I was just kind of wondering what your thoughts were about, you know, it's a pretty common fear, spiders, whether it's true phobia versus mine, like, yeah, I really don't like them and prefer to avoid them, of why do you think so many of us fear spiders and maybe why should we change that? I'll answer the second part first of why we should change that. And I think that a lot of people don't appreciate how common, how ubiquitous, and how important spiders are. So one of the things I'll talk about in my talk tonight is just the incredible diversity of spiders. So there are more than 48,000 species of spiders. They live in almost every habitat. There was a paper that came out within the past few years that said that spiders on average consume between 400 and 800 tons of insect prey a year. So they are ecologically incredibly, incredibly important. They Can I interrupt for one brief moment? Yes. Only because there is a model that said something like if spiders decided to, they could eat all of humanity in one year as well. I mean, it doesn't help the case of making me feel better about spiders. Well, except that, you know, they don't eat humans. So if they ate humans, I think we should worry. But the things that they're eating are things that we really consider pests as well. Mm -hmm. So they're eating a lot of the pests of our agriculture, of our crops. They're eating mosquitoes. They're eating things that spread disease. So they really, for the most part, are beneficial to us. If they're in your house, they're getting rid of a lot of the insect pests that most people probably don't want in their houses. So they are incredibly important. They play an interesting role in that they're both predators and prey. And so they connect up multiple levels of communities and ecosystems. So they're really important. They produce venom and their venom is being studied for things like cancer treatment, all sorts of biomedical implications that we can't even imagine right now. And their venom is incredibly understudied. They produce silk. They have up to eight different types of silk glands. And each of the silks that they produce have different properties in terms of toughness and strength and elasticity. We're still trying to replicate spider silk. And if we can do it, there are so many different applications, translational applications for synthesized spider silk. It's being used actually in nerve regeneration, it's being used for wound coverage. So 
biomedically, biomaterials, there's so much that we can learn from spiders. And again, most of this is really untapped in terms of the number of species out there and the number that have been studied with any kind of translational aspect. In terms of them as predators, they're incredibly important. In terms of their venom, they can be incredibly useful in pharmaceuticals, in various biomedical functions, and then their silk can be really important in bioengineering. So why are we scared of them? This is an area that I'm starting to get more and more interested in, in kind of diving into the literature in this. Naively, I think that it's just because people don't know about them. Mm. You know, most people's experience with spiders is negative, is learning as a child that one of your parents or your older brother is afraid of them, and so you should be afraid of them. And so there's this cultural transmission of fear. I like to think that as soon as people start hearing some of the amazing stories of what spiders can do, that that fear will actually dissipate and that knowledge is power and that knowledge can help people overcome that fear. And I think to some extent that's probably right, but I do also recognize that there is a true phobia that some people have of spiders. And where that comes from, I am intrigued by. And I don't know the answer to that, but I'm really interested in it. So to go into the weeds of your theoretical approach a little bit, I think it follows from that last comment about what we know about humans. I think a lot of ways the animal behavior literature is way ahead of studies of humans using the exact same theoretical model. So we use signaling theory that we've taken from animal behavior studies to study humans, but the depth that you're using it is far beyond anything I've seen. So what I'm curious about is the concepts in your proceedings B paper from 2016 of redundancy, degeneracy, and pluripotency in, in signaling theory. And, and what does that mean? And from reading your paper, I can imagine you'd be doing richer work in human evolutionary studies, but we're not. So could you give me a little introduction to those concepts and how they're useful for understanding the evolutionary context? So I think it might be easiest if I kind of walk through just very briefly my history in studying animal communication. And so when I was a graduate student, a seminal paper came out that was called Communication Goes Multimodal. And it was laying out some different categorizations of how if you have a signal with two different components, let's say one visual and one vibratory, how receivers may respond to each of those independently and then together. And that by looking at responses to just component A alone, component B alone, and component A and B together, you can group those responses into categories. And in this paper, there was a really nice table that kind of visually laid all this out and had different categories of multimodal signaling. And so as a grad student, I found this incredibly compelling. It was very intuitive. It was very clear. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I have wolf spiders that have visual signals and they have vibratory signals. And I started to design experiments where I looked at responses, females responding to just the vibratory components of male signals, just the visual components, and then the components together. And what I found very quickly across multiple species using multiple different designs is that 
it was not that clear cut and that these components interact in complex ways. And that framework didn't really fit with what was actually happening. And so as a next step, I kind of came up with functional hypotheses of ways in which different components of signals might interact in functional ways. And wrote a paper in 2005 with my advisor, Dan Papage, that laid out hypotheses of complex signal function in animals. And that framework was really useful for me for a very long time, and I, I hope useful for a lot of other people. But it was still lacking in that you would take a system, for example, my wolf spiders, and I could go in species by species and test these hypotheses and come up with an answer and say, okay, in this species, the seismic signal is dominant. In this species, the signals seem to back each other up. But there really wasn't a way to bring all of that together into one conceptual framework. And I think that was the next step. How can I make my wolf spider research relevant to the Tungara frog literature, relevant to the cicada literature, the fireflies? How can we kind of have a united framework of bringing it all together. And I was at a working group through Nescent, the National Evolutionary Synthesis Center. And in this working group, there was another researcher who had been doing a lot of systems theory, had written some papers on degeneracy and started kind of explaining the concept to me and saying, you know, you guys are so far behind. Animal behaviorists are so far behind the rest of us. You know, genomics and systems engineers and all these other fields have embraced this systems thinking where you're looking at something as a whole. You're looking at the complete architecture and you guys are still going in and saying, here's this one component, I'm gonna see how that functions. Here's this other component, I'm gonna see how that functions. And then I'm gonna put those two together and I'm gonna see how that functions. As opposed to saying, what does the entire display look like? How do those components relate to each other? And how does that system change or not? And what can that tell us about the evolution of these displays? And for me, it was really transformative for my own research. I had been working on the system for 15 plus years and it gave me new insights that I hadn't had in years and years. And this fresh way to look at these systems and just made so much sense. And so what we're doing now is we're building these networks of the different components of the displays and looking at the relationships between those components, and you can do it visually. So again, going back to humans and our communication and our learning styles, I am very visual. And so when I can see these complex networks put together and I can look at this species display and how males display when the lights are on, and then I can look at that same male when the lights are off and look at how the connections between those components change or not, it really can provide kind of a new understanding of how this system might function across different environments, across different times, and then across different species. And so the idea of degeneracy is where you have components of a system that have a different structure but overlapping function. 
And it relates to earlier ideas in animal communication about backup signals. So if you have a visual and vibratory display and I can't see you because there's a tree in the way, but I can still hear you, I am still going to respond because those two components function in the same way. And using the systems approach allows you to visualize these things, but also to look at how components may change together. So you can get an idea of modularity and start to understand how the complexity is actually captured in this system and how that complexity relates to the function. And ideally, in the best case scenario, we could take this approach and it shouldn't matter if you're working on a frog or a bird or a spider, but if we have the same tools for generating these networks and looking at the degree of degeneracy, for example, then we should be able to compare across systems and start to get this bigger picture of what selection pressure is driving communication systems. Your enthusiasm for this is really infectious. It also takes me back to a mammalogy course that I took back in undergrad where we talked about different communication systems as well across mammals. And it just, it brought up a lot of wonderful things. And I love really into breaking things up and parceling them into separate boxes, but that's not how organisms and environments work. And it's so important to take those steps back and look at the whole. So for the sake of giving you time to rest and give you a little balance to your day. We always have a question about balance in general or life-work interaction and are curious as to how people maintain some, if any, in their academic lives. Most of our listeners are grad students and fellow academics who are, who are striving for the, the ideal. What do you do? Right. I think that's a great question. And I think I came to the conclusion, once I had children, I came to the conclusion quickly that work life balance was kind of a misnomer. I think work-life integration is really the approach that I take. So when my kids were little, I would, you know, I took my daughter at six months with me to Panama in the field. I would put her in the backpack when I would go collecting. I brought both my kids into my office and laid them on the floor and would bring them to faculty meetings as much as I could. You know, as they got older, it turned into me going to their schools, running summer camps where they were there, taking them on collecting trips with me, really trying to spend my time with them both out of work time, but also in work time and kind of engaging them in my work with me. And for all of the outreach that I've done, I have expanded it and really gotten very interested in it mostly because of my children and because of taking them to different things when they were little and seeing that there were opportunities lost that you know going to events and seeing what was offered and thinking oh so much more could be done you know my kids are sponges and they're just waiting for information and so for me my family has really inspired a lot of not necessarily my scientific research, but certainly my science outreach and my science communication. They make me think really hard about when I'm communicating science, am I clear? Or is it making sense to them? Now that they're older, I think it becomes more of a question of balance because they're not wanting to come with me on these trips anymore. And so now it's more, how do I find time to spend 
with them in ways that they want to be spending it. Whereas when they were little, you could just take them with whatever you were doing. It's definitely challenging, but I think I'm a better, I know I'm a better scientist, I'm a better educator, I'm a better science communicator because of my kids and because of my family. And I wouldn't have it any other way, but it poses challenges that people without families, for example, don't have to struggle with. That's really beautiful. I quite enjoy that. And I have to ask, as I might assume, are your children grossed out by spiders? No, they are not. <laughs> Do they yeah. try to spread it to like their friends? Like, spiders aren't bad. Don't be scared. I don't know that they would go that far. My son probably does, but my daughter is just, well, she's a teenager. So They're spider justice just... warriors. Right. right. <laughs> if people want to get in touch with you at all to talk about spiders, spider communication, spider science communication, uh, are you active on any social media platform on which they can do that? I am active on Twitter, and it, it's at Hebbets Lab. I'm on Facebook, too, but Twitter is where I strictly do scientific engagement. And I'll add that your lab website has great videos, and as Kara said, your enthusiasm is obvious here, but it's infectious across the board. It's clear from your website the way that you've framed your outreach and your research that, that you get a lot of joy out of it, and I completely relate to your experience with the kids. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Thank you again so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. 